In 2016, the Bar of Ireland held a series of lectures celebrating the role of barristers and the courts at key junctures in the history of our state. The lectures included an examination of pivotal trials and some important legal personalities that figured in Ireland's struggle for independence. Under the guidance of the then Bar Council Chair, now Mr Justice David Barneval of the High Court, a range of legal luminaries presented at Green Street Courthouse near Smithfield Market here in Dublin 7. Today, we are delighted to bring these informative and engaging lectures to you in a different format and for a wider audience. In this episode, Daniel O'Connell, His Life as a Barrister, delivered by Mr Paul Gallagher, Senior Counsel, with an introduction by David Barnaval. Um, you're very, very welcome to this, the third lecture in our series of lectures on famous or infamous criminal trials and the lives of uh, important barristers in terms of history. The talk this evening is on Daniel O'Connell, his life as a barrister, and I couldn't imagine a more appropriate person uh, to give this talk than his uh, fellow Kerryman, uh, our colleague, uh, senior counsel and former Attorney General Paul Gallagher. Now, this is an area in which Paul has spoken uh, internationally, has addressed international audiences uh, and has kept international audiences uh, uh, in rapture with his talk on Daniel O'Connell. I'm quite sure he's going to do the same for us this evening. Um, he has, it has to be said, a very hard act to follow. Um, many of you will have been at the Daniel O'Connell Memorial Lectures over the past uh, three years. We had um, former President Dr. Uh, Professor Mary McAleese uh, giving that lecture now four years ago. We then had Mr. Justice Hardiman and Professor Gagan who gave the lecture two years ago. Uh, and we had President Higgins giving the Daniel O'Connell lecture last, uh, last November. So I would just like you please just to welcome uh, Paul and to hopefully listen attentively this evening. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, for that introduction. Before starting, just a few things that I would like to say. Firstly, it's a great privilege and honour to be asked to take part in this series of lectures, particularly having regard to those who have gone before and those who will follow me. It's a particular joy for me to get an opportunity to talk in the environs of this famous court. I would like to uh, say a special word of thanks to Shane Murphy, who has done so much to put this uh, series together. I'd also like to take this opportunity to say a special word of thanks to David Barneville for his truly stupendous and Daniel O'Connell-like efforts on behalf of the bar at a very, very difficult time. And I mean that most genuinely. It's important it shouldn't go recorded. Happily, like the great Bismarck, the great dictator of the 19th century, his term is also coming to an end and in the not-too-distant future. Um, I'd like to uh, say... Thank you to you all for coming here and uh, members of Judiciary, Ambassador Chilcott and my friends and colleagues. Daniel O'Connell was an amazing man. Um, I grew up in the 1960s being taught history in national school by the Christian brothers and there was a different take on Daniel O'Connell. One had the impression that he was an unfortunate failure. 
He didn't achieve all of his great causes, and perhaps more disappointing of all, uh, he wasn't pre prepared to resort to violence to achieve those causes. And you were left with a sense that he was not one of the greats of Irish history. But people do have periods in history where their achievements are not recognised, and Professor Gagan's books and Daniel O'Connell have redressed the balance and give us, given us deep insights into who, a man who I believe was one of the greatest Irishmen, if not the greatest, for all of the wonderful attributes that he had and for all of his magnificent achievements. He had three great causes in life, the cause of Catholic emancipation, the repeal movement, and the lesser known but very important anti-slavery cause. He only succeeded in full in one of those causes, the repeal. But I don't think it's correct to assess his success or his achievements by the metric of the success of those campaigns. Because his true greatness was in the manner in which he channeled the hopes, the efforts of the Irish people into a constitutional and legal opposition to the great injustices from which they were suffering. He was like a gravitational force that collected this support of the people and made it something very powerful, a mass movement in a time where nationally and internationally mass movements were not uh, known and had not developed. He gave a voice to people who had no voice. He was a champion to people who had no champions. And he gave respect to people who didn't enjoy respect. He took them away from servility and he gave them broadened horizons and he gave them a feeling that now at last there was somebody who represented them, somebody to whom they could relate. And the power and the effect of that on a peasantry that had been downtrodden for so long, that had been humiliated and oppressed by the penal laws is difficult to underestimate. O'Connell's fame was not just in Ireland. Internationally, he was recognized. In 1930, when the Belgian parliamentarians voted for the new king of Belgium, three of them cast their vote for Daniel O'Connell. <laughs> William Thackeray said that O'Connell was one of the great people of his age. Uh, Balzac said that he was one of the most influential people of the early 19th century, and another of those influential people was Napoleon. <clears throat> he was somebody who had a fame that extended beyond the boundaries of this island, and that is remarkable when you think of it at a time when there wasn't the communication when there wasn't the means of publication that we obviously uh, take for granted. He was, his portrait hung in the cabin of Captain Nemo in Jules Verne's 
uh, 20,000 metres uh, under the sea. He was somebody who was mentioned at a much later time in Ulysses in what I think are the immortal words. Joyce said, the tribune's words howled and scattered into the winds and the people were sheltered by his voice. His opposition to slavery was not confined to slavery in the United States. He campaigned on behalf of the Aborigines in Australia, the Maoris in New Zealand, and most of all, he campaigned for abolition of slavery and had a central role in its abolition in the United Kingdom in 1833. He continued his campaign, and as you know, uh, Frederick Douglass was invited to Ireland to speak to a convention in 1845 in which O'Connell was deeply involved, an anti-slavery convention. And Douglas, who was no mean speaker himself, was interested to see what O'Connell was going to be like because he had heard so much about his powers of oratory and his persuasion. And he said, O'Connell stood up. He spoke for an hour and a quarter, flawlessly and without a break. And O'Connell said to the multitude, he said, I am the advocate of religious and civil liberty around the globe. Wherever there is tyranny, I am the foe of the tyrant. Wherever there is oppression, I am the foe of the oppressor. Wherever slavery raises its head, I am the enemy of that institution or system, call it what you will. He said his concerns for the distress, his sympathy for the distressed was not confined to the four green corners of this narrow island, but extended throughout the globe. Wherever people were in difficulty, wherever people were oppressed, there his spirit was at home and his heart walked the globe to succor those people. And his words were immensely powerful. Obviously, he didn't achieve the emancipation of the slaves, but his standards were quite impeccable because his stance on slavery did some considerable damage to the repeal movement in the United States. He was admired for how he treated slaveholders when he was ever introduced to an American visiting these islands, he would say, pardon me, sir, but I, before I offer you my hand, I want to know whether you are a slaveholder. And on one occasion, the American responded and he said, I am not a slaveholder, but let's discuss it. And O'Connell said, pardon me, he said, but if I were introduced to a pickpocket who wanted to invite himself into my home to discuss the merits of pickpocketing, 
I would decline the invitation, lest he put his theory into practice. <laughs> he was unbending in his principles, and his moral courage was matched by his physical courage. You probably all know that he was challenged to a duel by John de Stair in 1813, having referred to Dublin Corporation as a beggarly corporation. And John de Stair, who was impoverished at the time, wrote to him and asked him were the words attributed to him, uh, had he in fact said them? And he said he would neither acclaim or disclaim the words, but no words could express the contempt in which he held that corporation in its corporate capacity. And John de Stair, who was a former Marine and a crack shot, challenged him to a duel, and O'Connell and he dueled, both shot at the same time, de Stair missed, and O'Connell, who had been aiming for his thigh so that he wouldn't kill him, shot him in the thigh, and de Stair was wounded and looked as if he would survive. As it happened, he didn't survive his wounds, and O'Connell did the extraordinary thing of going to de Stair's widow and offering to pay her an annuity for the rest of his life. She declined, but his daughter accepted an annuity, and at a later stage he was able to do her the additional service of representing her in some litigation. The belief is that de Stair was put up to it, at the time, if a peasant shot a landlord, they would be tried for murder. But if you wanted to get rid of a difficult political foe, you could arrange a duel with a crack shot. And of course, the person so challenged had the invidious decision of accepting the challenge and facing likely death, or rejecting the challenge and facing the certainty of disgrace. But Collins' career spanning as it did, or the part that we're interested in, from 1899, when he did his first case in the summer assizes in Tralee, to no, February 1847, when he went to the House of Commons for the last time, a very ill man, his voice described as hollow and almost inaudible. And he went there and he rose to his feet. And the voices that held him or the persons that held him in such respect now saw somebody in a totally debilitated condition. And he went there with his last breath, metaphorically speaking, to plea on behalf of his clients. And his clients were the people of Ireland in the middle of the famine. And he threw himself at the mercy of his foe and asked for mercy for Ireland, that they would do something to alleviate the famine. They didn't, but the effort, the magnificence of the effort, the extraordinary courage of the effort, cannot be undermined by his unfortunate condition and by the failure of the mission. And in a sense, that summed up the trajectory of his career. He started with individual clients, but he initially got involved in the, in the 
Catholic emancipation, then subsequently in the repeal, and his clients really were the Catholic people of Ireland for whom he was, as I said, their voice. He was born on the 6th of August, 1775, in Derry and his family were involved in what was called in Kerry the trade, but which was called elsewhere smuggling. <laughs> they were well-to-do for Catholics, but that was the time of the penal laws and the restrictions on Catholics while they had reduced over the course of the century, they were still under significant restrictions. Many of these restrictions were in breach of the terms of the Treaty of Limerick and were designed not to proscribe Catholicism and make it illegal, but to humiliate Catholics and to make it difficult to continue with the religion. The pettiness of some of the restrictions were such that they echo the modern apartheid in South Africa. One example was that if a Catholic was riding a horse worth more than five pounds, a Protestant could demand the horse of him and pay just five pounds. Catholics could not purchase land. They were restricted from the profession, a restriction so far as the bar was concerned that was lifted by the Catholic Relief Act 1793. O'Connell, from a very early age, was very bright. He modestly said that a head school teacher taught him the alphabet in one hour. Uh, I suspect it wasn't the only exaggeration of his career, but there was no doubting uh, his brilliance. He decided to go for law in 1794, and in those days there was no education available in the King's Inns, so he went initially to Lincoln's Inns and he studied the textbooks. There were no formal courses, but sort of Coke and Littleton Blackstone's commentaries, and I think you had to learned them off by heart, and Jerry Hogan's uh, book on the Irish Constitution. <laughs> um, and he spent the last term of his stay in England in Gray's Inn because he was planning to start at the Irish Bar in the summer of 1798 by going on circuit and to manage his terms because he had nine dining terms that he had to complete in the King's Inns. He did complete that in time, having returned from London in 1796, uh, only to be struck down by pneumonia while hunting hares in Derry Nan in 1798. So effectively, he only began on the Munster circuit in 1799. His first case was to write a declaration on a promissory note for which he was paid one guinea. And in all, he made £27 in his first year. He started on circuit at the Summer Assizes uh, and he was given uh, a brief by James Connor, a solicitor who had given him 10 of his first 16 briefs. And in those days you were led by senior counsel but you took every second witness and he was led by Jerry Keller who was uh, the father of the Munster circuit but who had changed his religion for personal advancement or was so regarded as having done so. And at that first assize, Connor briefed him in a case, uh, the subject matter of which is not very obvious, but it involved a man called Darby, who was described as half foolish 
was roguery, an untypical Kerry man. <laughs> and uh, Jerry Keller was leading him, and as I said, they used to take every second witness, and it was O'Connell's turn to take Derby, and most juniors, particularly in their first year, would decline uh, the offer, but uh, O'Connell wasn't shy, and he stood up, and he asked Derby, was he telling the truth? And Darby says, I am your honour. And he said, would you have had anything to drink that day? And Darby said, well, I had a share of a pint of spirits. So O'Connell thought and he said, um, now remember you're on oaths, he said. Would the share of the pint of spirits have been everything except the pewter mug? <laughs> and Darby was cowed into saying yes. And of course, needless to say, having discredited this unfortunate man, they won their case. This set O'Connell off, and he was immensely highly regarded. He quickly built up a practice in the main circuit towns in Munster. He had some contact with an official in Limerick Jail because he got all the uh, criminal cases that related to prisoners uh, from that jail, and he quickly became somebody of uh, enormous repute at a very early stage. Roderick O'Flanagan, in his book in the Munster Circuit, said he soon became the best criminal lawyer in <coughs> Europe. And of course, circuit in those days was difficult. He used to spend six or seven days in a term travelling between circuit towns and uneven roads and difficult conditions. And in the evening, they used to have the mess where it is described as the jug of claret and port being handed around and the mess being presided over by Jerry Keller and a man called Con Leary, whose nickname was Con of the Hundred Bottles. <laughs> and in Dublin, he used to rise at 4 a.m. He would get dressed and say his prayers, work from 5 to 8.30, 8.30 he'd have a breakfast of haddock, porridge and various other accoutrements, leave his house in Merrion Square when he purchased that house at 10.30, arrive down in the forecourts at 5 to 11 and stayed working throughout till uh, 3.30. O'Connell's attributes were many and his success was an enormous achievement at a time when success for Catholics was very difficult to achieve at the bar. Between 1720 and 1793, all the bar, the judicial offices, the sheriff offices, anything to do with the administration of justice was reserved for Protestants. And there was a significant boom, though by the late 90s, things were certainly very difficult. And R.L. Scheel, who uh, became a barrister shortly after O'Connell and took silk just before him to O'Connell's uh, annoyance, described the affliction of the bar in Ireland at the time and the difficulty in keeping up appearances. So O'Connell's early success was quite uh, extraordinary. By his second year, he earned 240, sorry, 275 pounds, of which a significant amount derived from one case Sigerson and Murphy. By 1806, he had earned 
in excess of £1,000, £1,077, and by 1814, he earned £3,880, obviously very significant sums uh, by that stage. His performances in court were marked by a great accomplishment of gifts. They say that others had those gifts, but none in his uh, abundance or none all those gifts. Charles Waggett, they said, was a better, uh, was a more eloquent, sorry, was a more skillful cross-examiner. Charles Burton and Richard Pennyfather were better at the law. Harry O'Grady or Dean O'Grady was a more eloquent speaker. But none combined all of these qualities like O'Connell. He was a superb cross-examiner who, it is said, but it's hard to believe, never asked a damaging question. His style has been described as pegging away at the mortar of a wall until he could insert a peg and do damage. He was somebody who gave the impression of being careless and relaxed, but evidently was vigilant to the core in court, watched everything, had a great sense of what was happening, and a great ability to absorb detail and remember detail. He had one great attribute. He had an instinctive, visceral understanding of the people that he encountered in the law, something that obviously stood to them when he represented them beyond the law. But that deep understanding helped him fashion his questions to yield the best results. He was also very conscious that the people at the time were very concerned with not committing perjury and exposing themselves to the perils of the law and more seriously, the perils of afterlife. And at the same time, not letting their case or their man down. And that tension between these two opposing forces in the minds of many witnesses was something that he was very good at exploiting. He was very good technically on the law. He is said to have raised very good technical points, one example of which where he was defending somebody who was accused of killing a cow and was caught by the victim's owner in the field with the dead cow standing over it. So it looked like an open and shut case, but O'Connell looked at the indictment and saw that he was um, accused of murdering a cow, and O'Connell pointed out it was dead, it was no longer a cow, and therefore the indictment should have referred to him attempting to take away beef rather than a cow, because the charge was murder and stealing. The murder charge was dropped during the case, and then O'Connell pounced in relation to the stealing. He was stealing beef and not a cow. O'Connell was fearless in court, and he was well able to stand up uh, to judges, and he had a habit of getting indignant and flinging his brief down on the bench, particularly uh, when he had a hopeless case. And if the judge was at all inexperienced, O'Connell would make a big song and dance in court, storm out that his client was being done 
a great injustice. And on one occasion, when an inexperienced judge objected and disallowed a question he put, O'Connell threw down the brief, looked up at the bench and said, this man's life is now in your hands. His blood will be on your hands if he is convicted. And he stormed out of court as saying, a great injustice has been done to my client. The inexperienced judge, cowed by this, directed the jury to acquit the man. <laughs> but his other great technique was when somebody objected to a question he was asking in front of the jury, he would uh, say, I, I cannot understand my friend's objection. It is a perfectly good question. If he answers this question in the affirmative, then my client must get an acquittal. And if he answers it in the negative, well then, the Crown's case is wholly contradictory. And this was a technique that he used to convey to the jury uh, the point that he was being disallowed, but it was a technique that was actually fashioned in a context where counsel weren't able to make a speech to the jury at the end of the criminal case. So one of the tricks that they used was by, in their questions and in their court antics and of that type, trying to convey various nuances, various stories to the jury to make up for the fact that the case couldn't be closed before the jury. That change, as many of you will know, only came about with the Prisoners' Council Act in 1836, where counsel, for the first time, were allowed to address the jury. Up until then, the person had to uh, make his own speech to the jury, and the theory being that if he was innocent, well, he'd be able to show he's innocent in making the speech. Um, but the whole, uh, the extent of representation had developed from 1730, before which counsel weren't allowed to appear, up till 1836, when this act was introduced, which is described by many as the most significant uh, change in the criminal procedure in the whole of uh, the 19th century. O'Connell was not a man to be interrupted on his feet. On one occasion, some attorney interrupted him, and he turned on him and he said, you audacious, snarling, pugnacious ramcat, in the top of his voice, and evidently judge and jury thought that was hilariously funny and the attorney was humiliated. But he was not a man uh, to cross swords with, and he didn't mind speaking out of turn. He was uh, as equally adept in Irish, as you can imagine, as he was in English. And in those days, you didn't have uh, uh, interpreters as such. When the need arose, if there was an interpreter available, they'd be sworn in for the case. And there is one famous case where O'Connell was challenging a will and a series of witnesses gave evidence and the issue was whether the deceased had been alive when he wrote the will or whether somebody had moved his hand after he died. And witness after witness gave evidence in Irish and they all said, Vi vaha aun. there was life 
in him. And after six of these witnesses, as V. Vaha Aum O'Connell uh, decided that there's something very strange with this careful choice of language, and the next witness he came up, he said, remember you're on oath and you better tell the truth. Are you saying, when you say V. Vaha Aum, that the deceased had a live fly in his mouth and the witness obviously afraid of the consequences of perjury said yes so o'connell won his case they had moved the deceased hand after he was dead um, he intervened on occasions in court uh, he wasn't shy about doing that even if he wasn't involved in the case on one occasion he'd been promised a brief on the assize if the case was being retried so he whispered to the attorney in a loud voice not to concede the point before the court and baron mcclelland who was the presiding judge said mr o'connell he said in a very annoyed voice he said are you involved in this case no said o'connell but i hope to be when it goes to the assize <laughs> so mcclelland said well when i was at the bar I didn't anticipate briefs. And O'Connell said, well, Baron, when you were at the bar, you were never my model as a barrister. And now that you're at the bench, I will not submit to your dictation. <laughs> On another occasion, when the Lord Chancellor Thomas Manners was presiding over a trial and a counsel who was leading O'Connell, John Richards, was making submissions, and Manners said, I, I've heard enough. I'm not going to hear any more. And Richards was very concerned because he thought there had been some significant evidence that he had to address and he wasn't allowed to address. And Flanders says, I won't hear you, Mr. Richards. So Richards gave up and sat down. And O'Connell stood up immediately without buyer leave and said, as your lordship will not hear Mr. Richards, uh, you will have the pleasure of listening to me. And he then launched into the addressing of this particular problem in the case and as described in history the lord chancellor was eating out of his hands after five minutes and o'connell prefaced everything in a faux modest way by saying well of course i'm not putting this as well as my friend mr richards but uh, he succeeded in changing uh, manner's mind so his accomplishments were quite extraordinary, perhaps difficult to convey in instances and in descriptions which have their nature are general. And always there's an element of folklore about these, though some are recorded, and there's an element presumably of hyperbole and description of all of his achievements and accomplishments. But I think all of the many historians have written about O'Connell and his speeches and the records that exist demonstrate that he was somebody of quite extraordinary talent. And I think there is one hallmark by which you can actually judge that beyond doubt. He was a junior until the 4th of November 1831 when he took silk after he'd effectively given up the bar. So his entire career was as a junior counsel. He was a Catholic at a time, the bar and the bench and all around were dominated by Protestants. 
It cannot have been an easy environment. It was not a friendly atmosphere. It was not an atmosphere and an environment in which somebody readily succeeded. As R.L. Shield said, as I mentioned, it took people many years to gain any footing. But O'Connell was regarded by the time of the McGee trial as somebody of extraordinary ability, even allowing, as I say, for the inevitable degree of exaggeration. O'Connell, in his fee book, kept a note on the judges, which is perhaps a practice that might be recommended more generally. Um, John Toler, uh, who became Lord Norbury in 1803, was somebody that O'Connell didn't mind much at the bar, but he despised as a judge and referred to him in his notebook or his fee book as the thing. And Norbury is described as somebody who had uh, a combination of buffoonery and uh, he was also a bully. Luke Fox was another judge who was somebody who was appointed as a judge following switching sides in the vote on the Act of Union and he was described as morose and stupid. St. George Daly was described as somebody who was wholly ignorant of the law and did not have the art to conceal it. <laughs> and his great friend Robert Day was described as poor innocent Day. He is entirely innocent of the law. And Day was uh, somebody who was uh, a politician, then appointed a judge, a presider over a number of O'Connell's trials, and O'Connell had a soft spot for him. As it happened, he was the man who built the terrace of houses in which I grew up, Day Place in Tralee, uh, and that was built in the late um, 18th century. He was uh, an entrepreneur and a landowner as well. He's described in a book on Georgian Kerry as a judge and politician of great accomplishment, but that was not how O'Connell described him, and I tend to believe that O'Connell's description was more accurate. Um, there was a case that um, O'Connell did before Day, and it involved uh, the killing of a goat, and there was legislation which said you could kill uh, a goat if it was eating your cornfield. This goat was doing nothing of the sort, um, and, sorry, excuse me, it was stealing a goat, I apologise, and there was a piece of legislation that said you could kill a goat if it was eating your cornfield or in your vegetable patch, and the accused was accused of stealing the goat, and O'Connell made the astounding submission to Judge Day that the goat couldn't be property, because you could kill it so easily and you were authorised by statute to kill it, so there was no right of property in the goat, and Day accepted that submission <laughs> and gave a direction. And on one famous occasion with O'Connell, he said, no, no, Mr. O'Connell, he said, I won't hear you. He said, I am always unduly affected by the last person I hear speak, and I'm not going to hear you any further. So 
That was O'Connell and the judges. And then there were two, I suppose, great trials in which uh, he participated. The first was the McGee trial, which many of you will be familiar, the publication on the 3rd of June, 1813, 1813 um, in, I think it was the Evening Post, of a piece on the Duke of Richmond, who was leaving Ireland as Lord Lieutenant, having been there for six years. And the piece said that Richmond was worse than all of his predecessors. He was worse than the profligate and ruthless Westmoreland, the cruel and cold-hearted Camden, and the artful and deceiving Cornwallis, who would, of course, uh, supervise the passing of the Act of Union. The article said, they deceived us, they oppressed us, and they murdered. And Robert Peel, who was the uh, chief secretary at the time, Richmond had had four chief secretaries, Peel was the last, uh, was determined to put down these voices of the people that criticised the administration. They didn't want to directly apply the law and get involved in prosecuting people in ways that could lead to unrest, but the way was to go after the press, which, as he said, fashioned the words of the demagogues and put sense into them and conveyed them to the people. So McGee was hauled up and the trial began on the 26th of June 2013, uh, 1813, and the prosecution was led by the Attorney General Sarin, who was a vicious opponent of O'Connell, who actually had opposed the Act of Union and said that no legislature had the power to alienate the power, or the, alienate the power to make legislation at the will of the majority, that the will of the majority could not be taken away by the Act of Union. As a result of that, he got into difficulty with Cornwallis and he was nearly stripped of his patent of precedent, but he quickly turned around and he became uh, Attorney General by 1807 until he was effectively got rid of by Lord Wellesley in 1822 because he was even too vicious for Wellesley and he was got rid of as he was causing unrest. But in 1813, he was leading uh, the prosecution with a barrister called Chemis and three sergeants at arms and the Solicitor General. And O'Connell was led by John Finlay, who thankfully is still with us, <laughs> and um, by Charles Philip. And they had two juniors. And Saren spent the whole of the first day outlining the case full of invective. And the following day, O'Connell stood up and made a speech to the jury that, of course, was not in the best interest of his client in the sense that it was not going to do anything to get his client acquitted of the charge of seditious libel. But it is believed that at that stage he had the full support of McGee because this was now a setting in which he could make his case on behalf of the Catholics of Ireland. He could say anything in the privilege of the courtroom. And in the court were Peel, the Chief Secretary, the Chief of Staff of the Army, and many officials from Dublin Castle. 
So he stood up to the jury and he said it was always been his rigid rule never to mingle um, his politics with his forensic task. But unfortunately, due to the actions and words of the Attorney General, he was tempted down a path he could not forsake and he would have to do so in this case. And he said, the Attorney General has made a speech that lacks poetry and lacks logic and is underpinned by an original vulgarity. He said, the Attorney General has gone on and traduced the Catholics. He has accused them of uh, being seditious, of being revolutionary, and he has attacked all of them. He said, the Attorney General is a man whom I may have misunderstood. Because you cannot rely on the Attorney General's words to understand his meaning. He is obscure and he is, lacks clarity and he is a profligate liar. And he said he has launched an attack that is totally unjustified. And at that stage, the presiding Chief Justice Lord Downs intervened and said, Mr. O'Connell, not unreasonably, what has this got to do with the case? So O'Connell said, uh, Chief Justice, you uh, have heard uh, the Attorney General for the last day traduce us, insult us, and you have done it with temper and with patience. He says, it is now our vindication. And he went on and he said that the Attorney General was a man full of bigotry, that he was somebody who waged war on Catholics and on the Pope, and that he was a man that could not be trusted. And then he said, he is the wisest and best of men. He attacks the Pope and Popery. And I tell him to his beard, he is dishonest. And he goes on and he continues his attack against him. He said, for 30 years, he said, how has he maintained this polished dialect? For 30 years, he has moved in establishment circles. For nearly 30 years, he has practiced in the greatest profession of the world, the Irish bar. And he has been exposed to the greatest legal minds. He has seen a galaxy of great lawyers whose lights have been flung into orbit all around him. How has he remained in darkness? He is a man devoid of genius and of logic. And the only thing that he has managed to maintain over all of these years is his original vulgarity. <laughs> uh, not surprisingly, after that great speech, uh, McGee was convicted. 
Um, but there was fantastic delight because the speech was published in France and circulated in France. It was published in Spain. An individual copy was handed to each member of the Spanish Cortes. It was circulated in all the newspapers of Ireland. And this was a magnificent speech about the oppression. It was said that he had shown the establishment as being hollow, as being oppressors and hypocrites. And this was an amazing achievement. So amazing that when it came back for a sentence in November of 1813, Sauron, the Attorney General, was determined in asking for the appropriate sentence to rely on this speech and not surprisingly say, as Peel had uh, realised, that a far greater libel had been committed by O'Connell in the course of this case than had ever been committed by McGee in the course of his publication. So Sauron relied on this and said it should be visited on his client in terms of punishment. And O'Connell stood up and he said, this utterance of the Attorney General, which he has obviously kept for a few months until he could declare it now. He said, it has made me find it extremely difficult to maintain the temper as I am required to do in this temple of justice. If he had said those words elsewhere, he would have been the subject of chastisement. And the word chastisement just set off the bench. Osborne, who was presiding, said, you cannot say that, uh, Mr. O'Connell. And Day, who rarely said anything, said, chastisement, that on its own is sufficient to found a criminal information. Sauron tried to calm everybody down uh, by saying he wasn't actually making allegations against O'Connell personally, but just his client. O'Connell was having none of it and wanted to maintain the umbrage and uh, McGee was at the back of the court. At this stage, all his will and courage had gone from being in Kilmainham since June. And he just saw his entire career going down in flames. So he prevailed on John Finley, I think it was at an adjourned date, to represent him uh, at the final determination of the punishment. He got off with a fine of £500. O'Connell was outraged because he'd been fired without being told. And he thought this was a great uh, ignominy. And of course, there was the issue as to whether he had let down uh, his client. McGee at that stage had, as I said, too much to the extent that he subsequently did a deal and became an organ, or his paper became an organ uh, of the Crown, and he and his brother uh, told the lie. But Peel, his sworn enemy, because he hated O'Connell, and O'Connell uh, heartily disliked him, was asked at a meeting in Lady Beecham's house in 1830 in London to describe who were the great lawyers of the day. And Lord Westmoreland instanced a lot of great orators and lawyers and said far better than that broguish Irish fellow O'Connell. And Peel is reputed to have said, he said, you can take all of those great orators, those great lawyers, but give me that broguish Irish fellow O'Connell. And perhaps that is proof of uh, his great skills, notwithstanding the rather messy end of the McGee case, 
but it didn't stop O'Connell going on to greater things. He continued uh, practicing until uh, effectively 1828, 1829, when, uh, sorry, 1829 and after when the repeal mo movement took over and he devoted himself to that, which in itself was an enormous thing to do for somebody who had all the worldly goods, the great success, the great fame, to give all of that up for these unfortunate uh, peasant people, so many of them people without education, without learning, but people with whom he had this fundamental uh, connection, this fundamental understanding. But in 1828, um, in the Donnerail, uh, 1829, in the Donnerail case, uh, arising out of the Donnerail conspiracy, of which, again, many uh, of you may know, Connell was prevailed on to take this last great case. The Donnerail conspiracy arose on the basis of an alleged conspiracy by a number of people to assassinate three landlords, a fellow called Cray, a fellow called Lowe, who was a particularly vicious magistrate, and Admiral Evans. And they were alleged to have hatched this conspiracy in Duane's pub in Donrail and in a tent at a fair in a place called, I think, Rathgar, uh, down the country, not in, in, in Dublin. And according to the man who made the complaint, Patrick Daly, and made the deposition the following day to uh, the authorities, um, they, a fellow called Leary, who was one of the accused, had directed people to sign up in writing to this conspiracy. And I should have said that the following this deposition, uh, one of the people who were the alleged targets of the conspiracy, namely the magistrate Lowe, was killed. So all of these people were rounded up on the basis of Patrick Daly's deposition and information. And they were being tried before a grand jury rather than the ordinary uh, judge and jury. And O'Connell's former colleague, Richard Pennyfather, who was in the Leinster circuit, was now Baron Pennyfather. He was uh, in charge or presiding over the trial. And the first grand jury uh, which was comprised really of people of the administration. Uh, the jury was made up of people largely of the administration. There happened to be one Catholic on it. Um, that they tried the first four people who were accused of having been involved in a conspiracy. A man called Leary, uh, Shine and McGran, I've forgotten the, the fourth man. And they were convicted within a day, the jury being out for uh, 20 minutes and they were sentenced to death and the next trial was to start a few days later and John Burke the brother of William Burke one of the people who were on trial for the next trial they were all panicking they said we have to get the counsellor and John Burke rode 90 miles on a Saturday to Derry Nan the counsellor was there exhausted after his emancipation um, campaign and he was offered £100 that they had gathered to come up and defend the conspirators, alleged conspirators, 
on the basis these were men who were certainly going to be hanged and die, and they were innocent. And O'Connell, to his great credit, agreed to do it. And uh, the story goes that Burke got back to court, uh, back to court that Monday morning, having rested, and said the councillor is on their way, and a crowd was gathered outside the court. And the councillor arrived, but late. And they had asked Baron Pettifeather would he adjourn the case for a short while to enable O'Connell to come, but he was coming, and Pettifeather said there was no question of that, the case had to go on, and it did. So O'Connell stormed into court, he was saluted by Pettifeather, and uh, Torrance, who was the other judge, ignored him, and he asked could he have his breakfast in court, because he had been travelling. So in came the breakfast, the ham and the uh, fish and everything else, and it said that O'Connell, between mouths of ham and drinks of milk, used to stand up and ask questions. And the first uh, witness was a fellow called Sheehan. And O'Connell was cross-examining him. And Sheehan, everything O'Connell asked me, couldn't recollect. Couldn't recollect that the derailed conspiracy was before or after Christmas. He knew what Christmas and Michaelmas were, but he didn't know when the derailed conspiracy. Uh, he couldn't give the month. He knew what a month was, and he didn't know how many there were in the year. Uh, he couldn't recollect anything. And he said he realised he wasn't as good a witness as he had been the previous Friday, but uh, he was just having difficulty in recollecting. And O'Connell kept pressing him, and he said, well, he said there were two other people of great repute that could support what he was saying about the conspiracy. Um, a fellow called Michael no Nolan and his cousin James Nolan. And O'Connell kept questioning him and established that James Nolan didn't exist, though Michael Nolan did. And Daly came up and he gave evidence and he was cross-examined by uh, O'Connell and uh, O'Connell kept putting to him that he had been drilled to say things by the police and that he was giving a story and uh, Daly denied this. And witness after witness came up and O'Connell cross-examined them all, accused them all of being drilled by the police of making this up. And he did uh, confuse um, the uh, jury and confuse the evidence that they had given with his cross-examination. The state had relied um, on uh, Patrick Daly and also on Owen Daly, who was with Patrick Daly when he was giving the deposition. And they said Owen Daly was a man of 16, or a young man of 16 and 17, 16 or 17 years, and of high repute. O'Connell called witnesses to show that Owen Daly was a man of 23 and 24 years and was anything but of high uh, repute. So the jury went out and they couldn't agree and they did agree on one a man called Barrett was found not guilty but they couldn't agree on the other three one juror was holding out a fellow called Murrah McMurrah a Catholic and they were pressed and pressed to um, decide and after over a day they couldn't decide and they were let go and the next trial started a short time thereafter and during the uh, course of that trial, uh, Daly was being cross-examined, and he said that he saw Leary write down on the piece of paper the conspiracy and ask 
these conspirators to write down and subscribe to it. And during the course of the examination of Daly, there was an interruption in court and some papers were handed to Baron Pennyfather, who looked at them and called O'Connell to the bench. And O'Connell went up to the bench and he gave to O'Connell what was the original information that had been uh, deposed to by uh, the original deposition that had been deposed by Patrick Daly immediately after this alleged conspiracy. And in the deposition, there was no mention of this writing and this document existing or people subscribing to it. So it was wholly inconsistent with the evidence that Daly had given. And uh, O'Connell uh, exposed this and the case was dismissed and there were no further trials in the Donnerale conspiracy. Of the four who'd been convicted and sentenced to death, they were sent to Australia and transported rather than freed, but they were sent and uh, they all died out there. Um, Leary had wanted to come back to Ireland and was never uh, able to do so. He was 75 at the time of the trial. But the Freeman's Journal described what an enormous and magnificent victory this was for O'Connell, that it couldn't have been done without O'Connell, and that he had saved all of these lives. And it was, by any standards, a truly magnificent achievement. And again, its magnificence is even greater when you actually abstract from the skill of O'Connell in dealing with the case, which was very impressive. And just think that these people had no opportunity of justice, no prospect of justice, no hope of justice without the man they called the counsellor. And he had the ability, he had the acumen, and he had the willingness to appear and redress what were hopelessly unbalanced scales in the um, realms of justice at that stage for the Catholic and national population. And to have devoted himself as a junior counsel for 30 years to doing that, and they say that he was dauntless, and that whatever happened in a case, he was ready to move on with the same enthusiasm to the next case and absorb the, the great detail. And as you know, his nickname was the counsellor indeed in the Donnerale conspiracy when he was cross-examining one of the witnesses in that first trial that he did. Uh, one of the witnesses said, uh, have, after he asked him a hard question, he said, um, uh, I didn't think I'd be facing you today, counsellor, he said. And uh, he had this ability, obviously, even by his stature and by his presence, to achieve things that could not be achieved. But his fearlessness to a bench at times very hostile, very unfair. For us as barristers, it is something that we can only say is breathtaking. There can never have been an achievement like that at the history of the bar, no matter who you compare them with, and perhaps at any bar. And to devote one's life as he did in this way, and at the same time, to carry on all of these other causes for the people is something that almost defies 
credibility. It's just so difficult to understand uh, how he could have achieved it, how physically and mentally he could have maintained this incredible uh, toll that all of this must have exacted uh, from him. But it seems to me that his career as a barrister, in the narrow sense, his achievements at the bar, his skills at the bar, his brilliance at the bar, pale into insignificance compared to those other great causes and what he did. And perhaps it's a lesson to us as barristers, we feel the importance of what we do, and no doubt it is important, the privilege of what we're able to do. But this man is just so far ahead of anything we can comprehend in terms of what he was willing and able to do, and did. His philosophy was so far ahead of the time. He was, as we all know, a devout Catholic, but he believed vehemently in religious freedom. He defended the Jews and the Jewish religion in the House of Commons. He believed in the separation of church and state. He believed in the equality of the sexes. There was a famous occasion in one of the re repeal meetings, I think it was, where women were barred. And O'Connell objected. And he says, minds have no sex. And he said, we are not using the weapons of injury or destruction. Our weapons are the weapons of reason and persuasion. And in that regard, both sexes are equally endowed. When you think of those words in 1845, from a man who grew up uh, uh, from a smuggling family in Kerry, who practiced in the many minor cases on circuit, but who had a vision beyond what we can comprehend. And his espousal of the fundamental human rights of the equalities and freedoms and dignities that we take for granted that were only perhaps given international expression in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. This man was a hundred years ahead of that. And when you think that he called off the Clontarf meeting because it was proscribed in fear of violence, far from being something for which we should condemn him, or even disapprove him, or even have a reservation about, was so utterly true to character, so magnificent in its understanding of constitutionalism, in understanding of the worth of human life. At Tara in 1843, he said, he didn't want anybody to die for the Union. He didn't want one life to be lost. He said he wanted people to enjoy the, I'm sorry, the abolition of the Union when it came and wanted them all to enjoy it. He knew that if he were attacked, that they would all physically stand by him. But what he wanted to achieve, 
he wanted to achieve by peaceful means. And when you think, as Isaiah Berlin says, of the hundreds of millions of people who died since 1848 in promoting, in promoting isms of one sort or another, here was O'Connell at a time when people's understandings and sensibilities and sensitivities and feeling of worth of human life were so much uh, less acute than they are now. Here was somebody who believed all of these lives were worth saving, that no matter what the objective was, it wasn't worth any human life. And his devotion to constitutionalism, constitutionalism and the rule of law are the bedrock for our present society based on the rule of law. And in a sense, that is his ultimate defining feature as a barrister. Because he started off with the individual client and he ended with the mass clients. All of these people were his clients. And all of them were to be protected. None of them were expendable in the great cause. And he was prepared to face and suffer failure, prepared to face and suffer ridicule, prepared to face and suffer the declining of his health. All of that, rather than take the step that so many advocated, of turning to violence to achieve something which was of great importance of itself. But in terms of people who many others would have regarded their lives as not being of great importance or lacking worth, he understood that. He had that intimate connection with the people, that intimate understanding of their feelings and of their importance. And no matter how irrelevant so many others thought they were, for him, they were relevant and to be protected. So that is why I think O'Connell was great. It's wrong to define him so much as a barrister or his career as a barrister. He has to be defined as a thinker, as a doer, as a man of great humanity, as a man of ideals and ideas way beyond his time, of incredible moral and physical courage, of incredible standards that he was not prepared to, in any way, reduce uh, or diminish. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Paul Gallagher, Senior Counsel, deliver his lecture on Daniel O'Connell, his life as a barrister, as part of the Green Street Lecture Series in 2016. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more of these lectures, log on to lawlibrary.ie or wherever you get your podcasts.